Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. There's some seats up front here if you want to take those. I'm going to offer just a, a brief introduction before Michael uh, jumps into the presentation today. Um, we have received some wonderful feedback in the first three weeks. Um, after class, in the hallway, even in the parking lot. And as a father who doesn't often get to hear his son teach, that's especially gratifying. So thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, we've also received some critique that's helpful. We always welcome uh, concerns, criticism, critique, pushback. It helps us refine <coughs> the message, uh, focus, fill in gaps, see blind spots. Last week after class, I had a conversation up front with the gentleman who concluded by observing that he felt like we weren't really being fair. I asked fair to whom, and he said fair to the Israelis. And I said, I want to I reemphasize again the, the focus of the class and what it is that we're trying to accomplish, because I suspect others uh, have a similar concern. As I know Michael and Rob shared with you in the first uh, two or three weeks, uh, our hope in these 13 weeks is to present a balancing narrative, it's to fill in some gaps in the knowledge base that all of us have. There's no way in 35 or 40 minutes every week that we can provide a complete story of the history of the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so what we're trying to do is to use the time that we have to fill in some gaps um, to provide a narrative that you haven't heard that will hopefully provide some balance. And then we're going to have a couple of opportunities, um, we hope, if we can get back on schedule a couple of weeks when we can have questions, we can have dialogue, we can entertain your concerns and share those together. Last week, Michael had hoped to get from 1949 to the first Intifada. I think we got from 1949 to 1950. <laughs> and so we're running a little bit behind. Uh, we welcome your questions. If you have questions to, to clarify something that's on the slide, please ask and we'll entertain those. If you have broader, more general questions, hold them until the end. We're going to try to save a few minutes at the end of each class. If we're not able to, we will be here after class. Those of you that don't need to get to the 11 o'clock worship can stay around as long as you want. We'll talk. And then we have a couple of sessions reserved uh, just to entertain your questions and concerns. Part of the time constraint we have is that we have three teachers. And each of us have complex schedules. So as you can tell, my brother Rob's not been here the last two or three weeks. He's at Woodmont speaking. He'll be here a week when Michael's gone and a couple of weeks that I'm gone when I'm on call at the hospital. So we're trying to follow an itinerary that Michael has set out, a schedule that will let each of us do what we need to do during the time that we're here. So forgive us if we push kind of hard at times, but we want to get this information out. I've got about five or six books here that I will reference at the end if we have time. If not, you're welcome to come up and look at them. These are books that I have recommended to students who travel with me that try to provide this balancing narrative. Some of them are written by neutral third parties that try to address the issue from a point of neutrality as much as can be achieved. Others have an Israeli and a Palestinian both writing to present the narrative side by side. Some are very short, some are more comprehensive. I'll be glad to share those with you later. So, Michael, take Great. off. Great, perfect, thank you. Uh, and I'll try to remember in the next week or two to bring in an, uh, bibliography of recommended reading on a sheet of paper that we can distribute to everybody. I'll, I'll try to email that to Eric and maybe he can print it out for us. So thank you for offering that clarification. Yes, we do want to present a balancing narrative rather than necessarily a balanced narrative because as we showed at the beginning, we're already imbalanced in our perception of the conflict. So we're trying to even that out a little bit. So I want to just, uh, as he said, we're about half a class behind schedule. If I don't get through the first, if I only get through the first intifada today, then we're a whole class behind schedule. So I do want to try to move as quickly as I can. Uh, and as he said, we will try to have at least one or two entire class sessions 
uh, during the summer where it's just Q&A and you can ask any question you want about anything. Probably we'll say I don't know to about 70% of it, uh, but we'll try to answer it the best that we can. So real quickly, I want to just recap what we did last time which is like three slides uh, we got to last time. Uh, so uh, as you'll remember, there was a, a major partition plan in 1947 to divide the land by the United Nations to divide the land between an Arab state and a Jewish state. Uh, the, this came after dramatic increases in, in immigration from the Holocaust. Um, and the problem, the major problem, let me see if I have that slide. I don't have that slide. The major problem for the Palestinians was that it gave 55% of the land to the minority population. The Jews were still the minority at this time in 1947, but they got over half of the land. So the Palestinians were not in favor of this. They did not vote to uh, uh, an acceptance of this partition plan. In fact, all of the Arab states voted uh, against it. So we have a partition plan that, that does pass. Israel, the state of Israel is established within these borders, what you see in light color here. And they declare their independence on May 14th, 1948. That's when the British control ended state of Israel now exists. So um, we then talked about how the very next day the surrounding Arab nations attacked um, and Israel's war of independence began and what the Palestinians called the Al-Nakba, the catastrophe, uh, where 750,000 Palestinians were driven out or fled from their homes. Now generally this is the way that we hear the narrative. There's a, a persecuted people who are looking for a, a homeland, um, to establish a homeland. They come back to their ancestral home. They finally get to declare their independence. And the very next day, all the Arab nations just try to attack them and drive them into the sea and wipe them out. That's often the way that we hear the narrative. Part of what we're missing from that story, let me skip past this. You can see all these, these villages that were depopulated. You'll remember that slide. Part of what we miss from the story is this right here. Right? We talked about how between March 30th and the day that the first Arab soldiers stepped foot into uh, Palestine and Israel, 200 villages had already been cleared and 200,000 people had already been displaced before the war even began. Right? That's the part of the story that we don't hear. We just hear it as Israel declares their independence and then the Arab nations try to destroy it. Yes and no. <laughs> There's more to the story. And part of the reason why the Arab nations attack, not the only reason, part of the reason is because of the massive influx of refugees that these countries were getting from the cleansing of the villages that was already happening before the war even started. Okay? So, just a reminder of, of those points. And then I tried to show through a series of quotes that I will not read again from, all, from the leaders, Theodore Herzl, who was the father of political Zionism, David Ben-Gurion, who became the first Prime Minister of Israel, Joseph Weitz, who headed the, uh, was a member of the transfer committees, trying to show, quote by quote, how what happened to the Palestinian people was not really an accident. It was part of the plan from the start. Not necessarily through military and armed force. Remember, originally it was economic, but then that changed. Ben-Gurion said we need to learn to speak a different language. Uh, and you'll remember the 1919 commission by the Americans that said this whole economic Zionist agenda is not going to work. It's only going to work through the force of arms. So we really think we should advocate for a restricted Zionist program. All right, that was in 1919. And one more quote. Okay, so that war ends in 1949 with a series of ceasefires, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. In December of 1948, you know, several months after the war had begun, the United Nations uh, issued a resolution called 194 that says, the Palestinian refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date and that compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return and for loss of or damage to property. Okay, United Nations resolution. Israel said, not on board with this. 
major reason was that, uh, a quote from Ben-Gurion, those who have declared war against us will have to bear the result after they've been defeated. In other words, how is it just for the Arabs to declare a war against us, for there to be Arab displacement, and then for them to complain about the displacement? You, you start a war, you bear the consequences of that war, right? Part of what he's missing, of course, is all the 200,000 people that had been cleared before the war even began. And also what he's doing is he is equating all, he, he's, he's um, kind of putting all Arabs into one pool, right? If Jordan invaded, then that's, you know, if the Jordanian people or the Syrian people or the Egyptian people invade, then the Palestinians have to suffer that consequence because they're all Arabs. And by referring to Palestinians as Arabs, you have effectively, through language, disconnected them to an identity of their place. Right? The Palestinians would say, we're not just Arabs, we're Palestinians, and we need to claim ourselves as Palestinians, because what that language suggests is that we have claim to this land of Palestine. Not Jordan, not Syria, not Egypt, not Lebanon. We are Palestinians. Right? It's different. So you'll often hear people, especially those who are, who are very Zionist or very pro-Israel, who often won't even want to talk about Palestinians. They'll just want to talk about Arabs. And often it can be a way of delegitimizing the connection that this particular Arab people have to this particular geographic space. Okay, so it's essentially what Ben-Gurion is, is doing here, I would argue. Those who have declared war don't get to complain when the war's over and there are people gone. Well, the Palestinians weren't the ones that declared war. They weren't the ones that invaded. <laughs> it was the nations around that. Okay, with me so far? So... At the very time that in 1948 the UN says Palestinian refugees get to come back to their homes if they're willing to live in peace, and if not, they should be compensated. And Israel says, absolutely not. They still hold that position. Absolutely not. In 1950, my dad referred to this last time, Israel passes the law of return, which says that every Jew has the right to immigrate to the country. So think about this from a Palestinian perspective for a moment. Say your family has been living in Haifa for 500 years. <laughs> farming that land, caring for that land, cultivating that land, a war happens and you get driven out of your home, you are not allowed to come back. You are legally barred from coming back, but you could watch a family, who's, a Jewish family, whose uh, folks may have been living in Russia for the last, you know, thousand years, potentially, who are then coming back and being able to take your home, right? That would be very difficult for most of us. And that's essentially what happens is that if you are a Jew, and we talked about the complications of defining what a Jew is, but if you are a Jew, self-identified, you have the legal right to immigrate to the country of Israel and become a citizen. We call that making Aliyah. So you'll have Palestinians who may have been in that land for generations upon generations, Jewish individuals who haven't been there for generations or generations, not to, de not to delegitimize their connection to the land, but as a fact, they haven't been there in generations. Palestinians have been there in generations, but Palestinians can't come back and inhabit their homeland, while Jews from anywhere in the world can come. Mainly that's to show what might happen in a Palestinian <laughs> to say, I'm really uncomfortable with this. This is unjust, right? This shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be barred from my homeland and let people from Europe come and take it. Then, uh, as you would know, at this time period, we have the Cold War. Now, uh, Rob often spends a good bit of time talking about the Cold War and talking about his memories of that. Uh, I'm going to spend very limited time on it. Basically, what I want to emphasize with the Cold War is the Cold War does have a significant impact on what happens with this conflict. And it has a significant impact on what happens with many conflicts all around the world. Primarily, you'll see this African proverb. When elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. Okay? This, this, to me, sums up the Cold War. There's an enormous move in conflict resolution um, 
practice and theory, when, you, when you're studying conflict resolution, that's what my master's is in, you can see that international conflicts, conflicts in general, change dramatically with the Cold War. For the most part, before the Cold War, that you had had these interstate conflicts, Japan versus United States, Germany versus France, right? It's, it's nations against each other. In the Cold War and after the Cold War, interstate conflicts move into intrastate conflicts. They become internal, kind of civil wars. Part of the reason for that is because when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. Even though the Cold War was a Cold War, it was a very hot war in many places in the world. That what the Soviets and the Americans started doing was essentially sending their arms to other areas around the world to play out their Cold War to see who would win. It happens in Central America, happens in South America, happens some in Africa, and it happens in the Middle East. So to this day, often you'll have Israeli soldiers who are using American-made weapons, and the Palestinian police force still has some old Soviet weapons. Right? So this conflict ends up getting fueled uh, to a degree by this Cold War that ends up getting kind of played out, tested in different areas around the world, including Israel-Palestine. Rob has a much deeper analysis of the Cold War, but that's essentially what I want you to get from that, is just to say the Cold War does have an impact on this. It kind of fuels it by, um, by the Americans kind of cementing their tie to uh, the Israelis, and then the Soviets is, uh, kind of connecting to the Palestinians. And that's not because the Palestinians were communists. It's just that that's what happened in the Cold War. The Americans were on the side of the Israelis, so the Soviets are going to come be on the side of the Palestinians. And the Palestinians are going to welcome that support. Okay? Good so far? Great. Then we get to what I'm sure many of us, uh, some of us may remember, some of us may have heard of, is the 1967 Six-Day War. Okay? Tensions had been rising for some time. Military forces seem to be preparing for war. Um, Israel claims that it, uh, it believes... Scholarship is contested on this, but Israel holds that um, it was under the impression that the uh, forces surrounding Arab forces, the same ones that invaded them in 48, were preparing to attack again. So Israel launches a preemptive strike. Okay? And in launching a preemptive strike, excuse me, they destroy Egypt first and then Syria. Uh, oh, they attack Egypt first and then they defeat Syria, Egypt, and Jordan and Iraq all in six days. Destroyed the air forces of, uh, of those countries. So it's referred to as the Six-Day War because Israel beat all of them in six days. Seems quite miraculous. Also, remember, they launched an attack first. It was a preemptive strike. They caught them a little bit off guard. What's significant, most significant, I would say, about the Six-Day War is that this is, when we talk, this is when the occupation officially sort of begins. Now, some Palestinians would say that they've been occupied since the 40s. <laughs> um, but in terms of when we talk about Israel's occupation of Palestine, which is, in, which is incredibly common language, it's not liberal language, it's very, very common language, um, and it means that Israel is militarily controlling the Palestinian people, which if you've ever been into the West Bank, you would know is an undeniable fact. It's just simply true. That this begins in 1967, because what happens is when, uh, at the end of the 48-49 war, uh, when uh, Israel had conquered more land than they had in the partition, Jordan ended up getting control of the West Bank, Egypt had control of Sinai and Gaza, and Syria had control of the Golan Heights. All of that changes in 67. Israel conquers all of that land from the surrounding nations. So they take the West Bank from Jordan, they take Gaza and the Sinai from Egypt, and they take the Golan Heights from Syria. Now to fast forward, Israel still has control of the West Bank. They still have control over Gaza, though they don't have citizens living within Gaza anymore. That ended in 2005. They've given the Sinai back, and they've essentially annexed the Golan Heights and taken that out of the conversation. In fact, they've already started drilling for oil in the Golan Heights. So Golan, in terms of like, what would a Palestinian state look like, what would an Israeli state look like, Golan's no longer really part of the conversation for Israel. 
And so it comes down to the West Bank and Gaza. One point, the Golan Heights is still part of the conversation for the international community. Yes. Although Israel has annexed the Golan Heights, the United Nations, even the United States, does not recognize the legitimacy of that annexation. Israel has renamed all the roads. They've put national parks. They have made the Golan Heights part of Israel. As a matter of fact, when I was there in April, Netanyahu brought the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, to the Golan Heights and had a Knesset meeting in the Golan Heights to demonstrate to the world their sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And the United States, along with the United Nations, rebuked them and said, that's not your land. That's still disputed land. You have taken land that belongs to Syria. It's still, uh, it's still under dispute. But Israel doesn't recognize that. Yes, sir. From the military point of view, the Golan Heights is the high ground. It's strategically yeah. very important yeah. for Israel. That's why they take why they build it. Just like the diplomacy angle from the military point of view, they're maintaining the high ground. They're maintaining the high ground, correct. Yeah. yeah. Were these disputed at all before 67? These four Golan Heights was owned by I mean it was, it's part of Syria. So it, it was not it was not ever a part of Israel. It wasn't given by the United Nations. It was it was, it was just taken. They weren't part of the equation. Yeah, they, it, Israel took it because it was the high ground and it looked down over just part of the Galilee. Yeah. So, you have a question? You said Egypt and Jordan and Syria had those like pink parts. Uh -huh. Were those still considered Palestinian before that happened and Egypt just kind of like protected that part or I don't know. I mean, Gaza, this strip here would have been part of the partition plan. The Palestinians were supposed to get a strip of land right here and pieces of this were supposed to be have given to an as an Arab state within Palestine. Uh, the boundaries got redrawn after the war because Israel conquered more land than they were than they had set aside for them in the in the partition plan. Uh, I don't actually know to what degree it was referred to at the time as Palestinian land. Gaza. Yeah, Gaza. Part of the British mandate. Right. Part of the territory of Palestine. So Sinai yeah. Was not. The Sinai was Egypt. Yeah. So Israel conquered that. They end up giving that back relatively quickly. There is there's a war over it in the 19 in 1956 I think, uh, which Israel wins and then they give it back again. Uh, so Sinai kind of goes back and forth, um, but. Uh, let me think. Is there anything else I want to say about that? I don't think so. Um, oh, but in terms of disputed land, even Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, which was conquered during the '67 war, has remained disputed land. Palestinians still say that is the site of our capital, East Jerusalem. Israelis say we're never giving back Jerusalem. It's our uh, undivided capital. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand, the United States has never still, I don't think, has ever recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. In fact, if you're an American citizen and you're born in Jerusalem, on your passport, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it will not say Jerusalem, Israel. It will simply say Jerusalem. The U.S. Embassy is in Tel Aviv. All international embassies are in Tel Aviv because Israel is not Jerusalem is not recognized as the capital of Israel by the international community. It's disputed territory. We have a consulate in Jerusalem, but our embassy is in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Okay. So, this is, this is a very significant turning point. This is when Israel begins to conquers the West Bank, Gaza, Sinai, and Golan, and uh, and begins what they is now referred to as the military occupation of Palestinian territories, and it creates many more refugees: two hundred fifty thousand uh, more from the West Bank, seventy thousand from Gaza, ninety thousand from the Golan Heights. So again, uh, what is occupation We're referring to? Territory is considered occupied when it is actually placed under the authority of the hostile army. Now, to Palestinians. Israel would be a hostile army. But in other words, the Israeli government, the Israeli military, has control over uh, much of the livelihood, movement, resources of land that is not owned by them, the West Bank. 
Now, you could say, well, it is theirs because God gave it to them, but that doesn't really fly, go very far in terms of international conversations. And it doesn't work in terms of diplomacy. And according to international law, say what you will about it, but there is international law. And according to international law, the West Bank is not Israeli territory. But Israel has, set, has communities, which we'll talk about soon, and soldiers all over that West Bank. Therefore, they are militarily occupying it, which according to the international community would be illegal. And a critical thing to understand about the West Bank, Gaza is separate, we can talk about later, is that the Palestinians who live in the West Bank are not under Israeli civilian rule. So if there is a legal concern, if they have a, a uh, if they're brought to court, they are taken to military courts, and they're under the authority of the military governor of the West Bank. They cannot appeal to the Israeli civilian courts that Israeli citizens can appeal to. So they are clearly under military occupation. Everything about their livelihood is controlled in one way or another, not by the Israeli civilian government, but by the Israeli military. So to put that into perspective, we'll come back to you. To put that in perspective. Uh, and again, I'm going to talk about settlements in a minute. Israeli communities are within the West Bank. But let's say you have a Palestinian living in Ramallah, and then you have a, uh, an Israeli who's living in Ma'ale Adumim, just inside the West Bank. If the Israeli is going to be uh, arrested and tried for something, that Israeli, even live with, living within the West Bank, will be tried under Israeli civilian court. And the Palestinian living a few miles away will be tried under Israeli military court. Two different systems of justice within the same territory for Palestinians and Israelis. Question. So... So, 20% of the population, maybe up to 25, 20 to 25% of the population of the recognized state of Israel are Palestinians. They're Palestinians who did not flee, did not flee outside the borders when the state of Israel, uh, when the war ended. So every Palestinian that was left inside these borders were given Israeli citizenship. Now, there's a lot of scholarship to talk about how they are second-class citizens. They do not have all of the same rights. They may have some of the same rights on paper, but they do not practically have access to the same rights. Dad can speak much more authoritatively on that than I can. Within the West Bank, they are not considered citizens of Israel at all. They would, they would be, I don't even know if they're considered citizens of the Palestinian Authority. What are they called now? They are not citizens of any nation. They are people without a country. They hold travel documents from the Palestinian Authority. Some of them hold Jordanian passports. They do not have citizenship in any nation. And later on as we go through the class, we'll talk about some of the stories that will help paint a picture of what it's like to be a Israeli-Palestinian, a Jerusalemite, a West Bank Palestinian, a Gaza Palestinian. They all have different designations and different, different rights within mm -hmm. the system. But they are not citizens at all. So they're still kind of like prisoners of war. I mean, they're under military occupation. Yeah. So that one, one of these weeks I'll be gone and Dad I think is going to do maybe even a whole class on uh, understanding these identities and stories of Jerusalem and what that's like. He has a lot of experience with that so do stay tuned for that conversation. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that issue. I know you want to hear more about it now. Um, but we've got to keep moving. So after 67, this is really the beginning of international consensus around this. International consensus plays out in two ways at this time. One, most people are now agreeing that Israel must fully withdraw from the territories it occupied during the war. And they also agree that Arabs must stop aggression toward Israel and sign a peace treaty. So Israel, give up the lands that you conquered. You can't do that. Arabs, quit picking a fight. It's sort of the beginning of the international consensus around this, including the United States. Um, the United States, well, here, actually, I'll do it with this. In November of 67, the war was in June. June of 67, six days there's a war. Israel takes territory. November of 67, the United Nations issues Resolution 242, very significant resolution. And in it, they say... We are emphasizing the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war. Remember, Geneva Conventions have now happened. 
They hadn't happened in the 48 war, so Israel took territory and it wasn't considered illegal during, under international law. Geneva has since happened saying the borders that now exist in the world, those are the borders. You can no longer take land during a war. You can't expand. We're not doing empires and colonialism anymore. That is done. Therefore, when Israel took land in 67, that is in violation of international law and they're supposed to give it back. That's what all the countries agreed to. So this is what they're emphasizing. Emphasizing this, that you can't acquire territory in a war and the need for a just and lasting peace, we call on, Israel, on the withdrawal of Israel armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict and a just settlement to the refugee issue. Now, Israel says, sounds good to us. Palestinians say, not a chance. One of the major reasons for the Palestinians is because there was no mention of a Palestinian state. And that's where the Palestinians really are at this point of saying, we need our Palestinian state. And to a degree, they're still hoping that Israel will no longer be there. Not that the Jewish people will necessarily be gone, but the nation of Israel, and kind of in contrast to a nation of Palestine, won't be there. That all of it will be back to being a Palestinian state. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So the Palestinians say, we're not on board. Israel says, we are on board. Let me see if I have a slide about this. I don't. Okay. What's significant about why they agreed to this, since they haven't actually withdrawn, they still to this day, since 1967, control the West Bank and have control over what comes in and out of Gaza, and they still control the Golan Heights. So how in the world did they agree to this and not do it? Well, what they ended up arguing was that what this says is that we need to withdraw from territories, not all territories. It does not say withdraw from all territories occupied, and we gave back the Sinai. Therefore, we are in... Uh, we, we are within the, the ramifications of, are within the, the principles of this document. The UN has said, we worked really hard on this language and we feel very certain that it implies all territories. And Israel says, it does not say all territories. Therefore, we're in keeping with it. So that's kind of one of the ways that Israel said we can approve this and not actually do clearly what it was intending uh, for Israel to do. Very next year, uh, the Palestinians uh, released their kind of official charter. It's one of the first unified documents from the Palestinian people. The Palestinian identity is really being cemented at this time as a national identity. So what they say is they released this national charter in July of 68, and they say Palestine, with the boundaries it had during the British mandate, therefore before partition, all of the land, is an indivisible unit. Can't divide it up between us. It is the national duty, it is our national duty, to bring up individual Palestinians in an Arab revolutionary manner and the national struggle for the liberation of Palestine. Note, the language here is not about killing Jews. <laughs> it's not about anti-Semitism. It's about the liberation of their country. The same language that the Jews were using about liberating their homeland from the British. The same language that the American revolutionaries were using <laughs> around liberating their country from the British, the same language that Gandhi was using in liberating his country from the British, the British get around. Uh, so just to kind of put that in context, that it's not necessarily fair to the Palestinians to say all of their uh, violence against the Israeli state is because of anti-Semitism. It's not true. The language that they will consistently use is we want to be liberated from our country. Now at this time, and it will change, at this time the language is still we need all of Palestine undo 1948. 1948 should not have happened. Self-determination prohibits it because we were not on board. Should not have happened. We want to go back to having all of that land and the Jews can just stay here with us and be the minority. But we want that land back. That's still where they are. Okay? So it's their national duty to bring them up in an Arab revolutionary manner. At this time, notice their strategy. Armed struggle is the only way to liberate Palestine. Thus, it is the overall strategy. 
We may have different tactics within that strategy as time goes on, but <clears throat> in terms of our overall strategy, it is armed revolution. Sorry, it's very hot up here. <clears throat> I can see that you all are hot as well. <laughs> the partition of Palestine in 1947 and the establishment of Israel are entirely illegal because they were contrary to the will of the Palestinian people. Again, referencing Woodrow Wilson's 14 points on self-determination. We didn't agree to this. It's not self-determination. Therefore, it's colonialism. Therefore, it's illegal. That's kind of the logic. Okay. Uh, I don't know why I have that again. Oh, here's the last one. So they say the liberation of Palestine will destroy the Zionist and imperialist presence, not destroy the Jewish people, destroy the Zionist and imperialist presence. Language is important. We, don't, we can't necessarily just take this and say, oh, they wanted to kill all the Jewish people. It's not what it says. Destroy the Zionist and imperialist presence. Undoubtedly, there would be Jewish Israelis who would die during that, such a war, but the point wasn't to kill Jews because they're Jews. <laughs> it was to destroy the Zionist and imperialist presence. Okay? So, what's happening behind the scenes at this time? Israel has taken land, they've taken the West Bank, they've taken Gaza. What are they supposed to do with it? The conversation's kind of raging behind the, uh, in the parliament and, and among the political circles. Fierce debate happens. One question is annexation. Do we just annex all the land and say that it's part of Israel? The reason why they decided not to do that is because of the demographic problem, which is the same problem they're having today, and which we may talk about at length later on. Basically, the problem is this. There are more Arabs, more Palestinians in this land than there are Jews. Therefore, if we annex this land and include it as part of Israel, if we are to be a democracy, everybody should have the right to vote. And if everybody has the right to vote and the majority of our population are not Jews, the likelihood of there being a Jewish state is essentially zero. This is what happened in South Africa, right? You deny black people the right to vote under the apartheid government from 1948 to about 1994, and the apartheid government rules. Then they decide to have democratic elections, let all black people vote, and the ANC takes power in 1994 with Nelson Mandela as the president, right? Because when you have a country with the majority, majority of your population is black, they're unlikely to vote in favor of having an apartheid government where they're denied rights. Same thing is arguably true in Israel-Palestine. If you make everybody in this land an Israeli citizen with the right to vote, there's no way if the majority of them are not Jews that they'll vote to have a Jewish state. It just won't happen. So Israel said, that's really not in our favor to have a Jewish state and annex this land. Okay. So then they discussed a partial withdrawal. And this is the map that was proposed, which is always mind-boggling to me, that what you see in yellow would go back to, uh, to Jordan. So Gaza would go to Jordan, <laughs> Hebron in this area would go to Jordan, and this little path in here, and Israel would get what's in orange. I'm not a military strategist. I have no idea how that makes sense. But that was the proposal. It's going to divide up this land and get part of it back. Whoop. The, the reason, and we're going to see the same map later as we look at what's happening now, is Israel very beginning wants to keep the Jordan Valley. Mm -hmm. They want to keep the Jordan Valley for two reasons. One, it's because it's fertile, things grow there. And number two, it's a border with Jordan, a hostile enemy. So Israel has from the very beginning said, we're not giving back the Jordan Valley. And all of their policies since 1967 have been moving in that direction. And even today, they have every intention of annexing the Jordan Valley and keeping that permanently, which effectively ends any possibility of a two-state solution. We're going to mm -hmm. talk about that as we go on. But going all the way back to this early time period, they're basically saying, we're keeping the Jordan Valley. So what, what happens uh, is that they essentially don't do this. They just maintain military control of it. And again, East Jerusalem, well, I can't see Jerusalem. Oh, here it is. East Jerusalem was never considered as part of that. From the moment Israel, uh, Palestinians would say from the moment they occupied it in 67, Israelis would say from the moment we liberated it, 
1967, difference in language there. Ever since then, they've never considered giving it back, ever. Okay, it's always been, this is now our capital, and we will hold on to it till the end of time. Now, let's look at what begins to happen. They say, okay, we're not going to give it back. And so then something starts happening. And I am going to wager that many of us have not heard this. According to the United Nations statistics, between June of 1967 and 1971, four years, Israel destroyed approximately 16,312 Palestinian homes. Bulldozed 16,000 homes. Now, show of hands real quick, how many had heard the scale of Israeli house demolition? Show of hands, how many had heard of this? Very few. How many have heard of Palestinians uh, attacking Israel as suicide bombers? Therein proves what I think is our point. This is why we're telling a different story. Because all of us have heard of attacks by Palestinians as suicide bombing. Almost none of us have heard that Israel has destroyed within four years. That is not even including what's happened until 2016. I've witnessed one of these house demolitions myself. In the middle of winter, a Palestinian home was destroyed within 100 feet of an Israeli community in... uh, in the West Bank, an Israeli settlement, an illegal Israeli settlement, within 100 feet of that, there was one Palestinian house left and they bulldozed it. I was there when that happened. We don't hear that. According to, we'll talk, we may talk about this later, some could argue that that is an act of terrorism to come through and destroy people's homes in the middle of the night, to drive them out in the cold and force them to find somewhere else to live. We could argue that is an act of terrorism, even according to the FBI definition of terrorism. I think I have a slide on that later. So I, I hope that exercise at least shows <laughs> There is an imbalance in the narratives that we hear. Not necessarily because we're at fault for it. That is what the news gives us. They will cover the Palestinian who will run through this old city of Jerusalem wielding a knife, and they will rarely cover the Israeli brigade that goes in and forces a Palestinian family out of their home in the middle of the night that might have compelled that young Palestinian to run through the street with a knife. We hear what happens at the end and not what happened at the beginning. So now we're going to talk about settlements. One of the ways that Israel decided to deal with the land that they had conquered was they said, let's go and grab the hilltops and start building communities there and and to try to change what they called the facts on the ground so that maybe when the world finally wakes up to what's happening, it will be too late. And in fact, it may well be. So what are settlements? Settlements are Israeli Jewish housing units built on land that was occupied during the 1967 war. So within the West Bank, within Gaza primarily, we're going to talk about right now in the West Bank and within Gaza, that after Israel took the war in 1967, any Israeli Jewish community that was built on that land that they took is considered a settlement. And according to international law, they are entirely illegal. Entirely. Really? You have to give back UN Resolution 242. You've got to give back land that you took during a war, and you definitely can't start building cities on it. Fourth Geneva Convention, this is it. The occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of its own population into the territory it occupies. One of the things that Israel says about this, these lands are administered and not occupied. I remember that when dad was giving a, correct me if I'm wrong on this story, he was giving a lecture uh, at uh, the Ben-Gurion Medical School in Beersheba, an Israeli city in the south. And he was talking about some of the work he was doing in the occupied territories. And one of the physicians there interrupted him in the middle of the lecture and said, we don't refer to this as the occupied territories. We refer to them as the administered territories. Language is very important. So much so that you'll interrupt an international lecture on getting that language just right. It's administered, not occupied. So therefore, this doesn't necessarily apply. We're not occupying this. Plus, Israel will also say that this was, this was re- mainly targeting the forced transfers during World War II, about forcing their citizens into new la- uh, areas, whereas Jewish citizens go almost entirely voluntarily, or they do go voluntarily. So we're not making our uh, citizens move into the West Bank. They choose to move there. We don't prohibit it, but we don't make them do it. 
Now, what they don't talk about are a lot of the incentives that are given to Israeli citizens to move into the West Bank. Can, do you remember any of these incentives? Yeah, they're, they're, number one, the, the price of property is significantly less. You can own an individual single-family home with a little yard in a settlement in the West Bank for a fraction of what it would cost to own the same home in Israel because of the subsidies from the evangelical community of the United States and the U.S. government. Um, also, there are... Um, tax rates that are given to Israelis who will move into the settlements. Uh, they're taxed at a different rate than those who live in Israel. So there are clearly economic incentives provided by the Israeli government to encourage the settlement projects and the movement of Israelis yeah. into the West Bank. Great. I'm sorry? How do you track the U.S. contribution? Well, it's, it's, I, I can't do that now, but it's, there, are, there are those who, have, who are tracking the movement of those, those funds and donations through international organizations that are supporting the, the settlement project and through tax relief and tax breaks and and the military support that's given to the Israeli military through all sorts of ways that the U.S. has been complicit in the settlement project. We've got about five minutes so I want to I want to move on see if I can get a little bit farther. Um, Basically, these slides are just to say that there are two reasons often given for why take the West Bank and Gaza. One is security. Uh, Here's a historian who says there was also a strategic reason for not wanting to give it up, and that was that it turned Israel's narrow waist into something wider. So that the way that Israel's borders are drawn, there's a piece of it that's very narrow, and Israel would say indefensible. Therefore, they need to have control of the West Bank as a buffer, that security zone between them and Jordan. So there's one argument for security. Others argue is about dispossession, about getting rid of the people who were there. Michael, one more point I think we've, we've got to make at this point. I know we're running out of time. You look at the map again. The way the land was partitioned. Michael said it was partitioned based on where the people lived at the time. It's too far. Even though the, the Jewish uh, Palestinians, the Jewish uh, residents of historic Palestine were still a minority, but they lived along the coast in the Galilee. So the land was divided in that way. But for the Zionists, especially for the religious Zionists, the land that mattered was Judea and Samaria. Biblical Israel, Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria we now know today as the West Bank. So from the very beginning, the partition of the land did not acknowledge one of the primary reasons that the Jews wanted the Holy Land. They wanted to go back to biblical Israel, Judea and Samaria. The United Nations divided the land and gave the heart of the country what was most important religiously to the Palestinians. So from the very beginning, there was a recognition on the part of the Zionists that they would not let this stand. Eventually, they would take the West Bank. Because that's the part of the land that mattered to them biblically. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Haifa and Tel Aviv. It was the central part of the land. So all along, there's been this movement from 1967, immediately after the war, to move settlers in. And those settlers are the most radical right-wing Zionists, either politically or religiously, who are moving in to reclaim Judea and Samaria with no anticipation of ever leaving, of ever getting that and I'll, I'll tell some stories uh, later on um, that are uh, kind of chronicled in the book that some of you have bought, Letters from Apartheid Street, and tell some stories about what has happened in, uh, in Hebron, which is where really the, some of the most radical or extreme of those uh, uh, Zionist settlers uh, have located themselves because of the religious significance of Hebron. I'll tell you some stories about that that I'm sure will surprise you. Real quick, just within a 20-year period, there's a lot of stuff that happens between 1967 and 87. There's another war with Egypt. There's the rise of Palestinian terrorism, which really begins in 1968 with that document on the uh, Palestinian National Charter. Sponsored often by the Soviets, you'll remember things probably like the Japanese Red Army massacring civilians in the Tel Aviv airport in 72. Many of you will also remember the Munich Olympics 
of 72, right? That's all part of this rise of Palestinian terrorism that then begins to include things like airplane hijackings and things like that. Suicide bombing has not arrived yet. It's a later development. Right now we're seeing more of airplane hijackings and kidnappings and things like that. Okay? We have another big war between Israel uh, and uh, Arab nations called the Yom Kippur War. Um, 1979, Israel uh, signs a peace accord with Egypt, brokered by Jimmy Carter and the Camp David Accords. This is when they finally give the Sinai back, uh, after they took it in 56. And then another war in 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon to attack the Palestinian Liberation Organization. You don't need to know all that, really, mainly just to know that rise of Palestinian terrorism happens after the Six-Day War, not before after the Six-Day War, when the occupation began, that's when Palestinian terrorism happened. One of the things that I got critiqued, actually it happened here, um, when I, last time I spoke on this, was that I spoke on um, the settlements and what was happening with the settlements, and one individual said, um, how come you didn't talk about uh, how Palestinian, uh, how the settlements are a response to Palestinian terrorism? That, that Israel has begun building and securing the West Bank because of Palestinian terrorism. And I said, the reason I didn't talk about that is because it's factually inaccurate. Right? The, 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 chrono the chronology is the opposite. Settlements and occupation begin, and then terrorism happens. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, that's just, that is just what happened. So th we can dislike that narrative, <laughs> but it is, the, it is the actual narrative. Okay? So there's a lot of conflict over the next 20 years. Tensions build. Um, and uh, in 1974, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, says it will struggle by all possible means and foremost by arms, means of armed struggle to complete the liberation of the whole soil of Palestine. So even up through the 70s, they're still holding on to this idea that we will undo 1948 and we will take back all the land. That's still the, the desire. Now that will change and it will change very soon. So this is where we're going to have to end. So we got to where we were supposed to get last week. Woohoo! Uh, we get to what's called the first intifada, which begins in December of 1987. Intifada is an Arabic word that means shaking off. So the idea of the Intifada was to shake off the occupation of, of Palestine. We call it a revolution, we call it an uprising, literally means the shaking off. And we're going to talk more next week about uh, what that first Intifada looked like and hopefully get to what happened in the second Intifada, which was far more violent. We have about 30 seconds. Questions? <laughs> it strikes me how similar this whole thing is to Manifest Destiny and Americans basically genociding the Indians and then blaming the Indians for being violent when they're yeah. just taking Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, there are some striking maps that I, I think I may have in a later one that shows a map of the Palestinian loss of land juxtaposed next to the Native American loss of land. It's very interesting. Yeah. Question over there. Um, you had mentioned something about putting the slides maybe in a shrunk down version where we could look at them and think. Yes. So I, I'm putting all of these, the PDFs of all these slides on a, uh, a uh, Google Drive folder. Uh, if you're interested in that, please just send me an email. Um, and I can give you the link. It's mtmcray at gmail. Okay? So if you'd like to get those slides, um, then just send me an email, and then I'll send you the link, and you can just log onto the internet and open that folder, and then it'll have the ones from the last four weeks, the slides. We know many of you need to go. If some of you want to stay around and talk, we'll be glad to do that. I've got these books up here if you want to copy down those titles. Um, we'll, we'll Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank just you. come up. Thank you.